one thing you learn, and I learned it that day pretty well, if, if you're going to exit off a rooting horse, you go out the back. When he started bucking on top of me, that's what did the damage. He stood on me chest and broke me ribs front and back. Of course, it punctured me lung and pretty much immediately started coughing up blood and looked pretty terrible. Still breathing okay at the moment. Is it a big property? That blood pressure is not coming up. Hi, my name is Lana Mitchell from the Royal Flying Doctor Service. This is a podcast about life in the bush, mateship, courage, and the role that the Royal Flying Doctor Service plays in serving rural and remote communities. This is the Flying Doctor Podcast. My name is Kira Lee Dargan from the Royal Flying Doctor Service and I'm an Aboriginal woman of the Radjuri Nation. This podcast has been recorded on Ngunnawal land and is being broadcast across all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander nations. We at the Royal Flying Doctor Service want to acknowledge Elders past and present. The RFDS recognises that this is First Peoples land and always will be. Longreach is a township smack bang in the middle of the Queensland state in what is known as the Central West. It's the heart of the Queensland outback and has broad landscapes that have inspired Australian poets for generations. Richard Cullen is in his 50s and the land has always been his home. About 20 years ago, when farming was doing it very, very tough with the ongoing drought, he had to work out a way to continue to support his family and bring in an income. So he tried something that ended up not just saving his station, but has proven he was a pioneer in immersive tourism experiences that we now find all over Australia. Richard jokingly says that he has frequent flyer miles with the Flying Doctor, as he's relied on us many a time when things have gone wrong. But as a seasoned man of the outback, he has come to learn that accidents can be prevented with foresight, preparation, good training of horses and a sense of humour. Hi, Richard. G'day, how are you going? I'm really good. Now, I would like to start off initially by asking you about your family business, which is all about immersive tourist, immersive experiences for tourism. Would you tell me a little bit about Outback Pioneers? It was the most extraordinary sort of, when we look back over it, it's the most extraordinary sort of a setup because there's no way I would have ever thought we would have ended up doing what we're doing today, even 10 years ago or even 19 years ago when we, when we diversified into tourism just to help us with fighting the droughts and fighting the challenges we had on the land at the time. And I mean, we didn't set out to to end up at this destination we're at now. I can certainly tell you that. Right. Well, what sort of experiences can tourists uh, enjoy if they come and and stay with you? So, years and years ago, when we were little fellas, being brought up um, on my home country, which my brothers are on now, we used to come over to Longreach, and there was an old fella here in Longreach town that used to do a, um, a drive a cob and coke coach around town. And he he was a great old fella and mum and dad had kind of let us go with him while they did their town stuff um, while they were in, in doing their business. And 
and we would help old Arthur do do his Cobb and Co and all the rest of it. And they were great days, and old Arthur, we had a lot of fun with Arthur because whenever he knew we were coming, he would put in new horses or whatever and, you know, make the most of us while we were there. And so um, when we had to do something else, either sell the station or, or find, a, find another way to put a bit of bread and butter on the table, I said, look, I want to take in one of my horse-drawn vehicles and I wanna, uh, I'm going to try starting off where old Mr. Tyndall or Arthur finished off because he did that right into his, right into his <coughs> mid-80s and, and then he got too old and too frail and he couldn't do it anymore and it all folded. So that had stopped for 15 or 18 years at least. And so we brought a... Um, one of our horse-drawn vehicles into town and and or one of our coaches and and um and we started we started doing that i left my wife and my three children at home on the station to run the station and keep things going out there and keep feeding the drought stock and all the rest of it and i brought one of the old ringers into town to help me with this operation and and the the, the rest is really history and if you would have, I would have never dreamt that we would have ended up where we are. We do over 20,000 kilometres a year now in our Cobb and Co coaches. Um, and we identified something really early in the piece. We did a little bit more than Arthur. We we found the old mail track and, and um, we used we started taking people down the old Royal Mail track, giving them a real, a real experience. And the rougher we could make it and the more dust there was and the the, the the wilder it was, the more they loved it. better they loved it, and and uh, we identified that very early in the piece, and we started creating experiences that were fully immersive. It wasn't for the faint-hearted some of our things that we were doing in those early days, but it was what set the bar, and and then we just kept getting better and better at what we done, and well, I believe it's a great business. I've been. All over the world, I was invited to America to tell them how we were doing our stagecoach experience and how we were doing it through immersion. And I've been to China three times, and I've been to New Zealand and 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 a lot of other places to tell them about our our immersive tourism. So, going going from a, a kid that only did school of the year and and distant education, I guess um, I'm telling a telling a real story I guess that's fantastic this story is not about me but you've just reminded me when I was a teenager I worked in Sydney driving handsome cabs around the rocks really and I did it for yeah I did it for about 18 months they don't have them there anymore but gosh I loved it I did it four or five nights a week and um, it just little the handsome cab I'd sit right at the back I'd wear the Cobra and the drive and yeah, and and I would be up and down Elizabeth Street and George Street and around the rocks and the cobblestones. And when it would rain, it would just be amazing, absolutely amazing with the horse. But I I do say that the Opera House didn't like it. Um, no, <laughs> the Opera House and the Hilton and some of the the big, very expensive places really didn't like it if the horse came along and pooped. And so we ended yeah. up having to put poo bags on the horses. And yeah, anyway, there was. That's a whole nother story, but it was it was very similar. This was back in in the eighties, and yeah, um, yeah no just loved it, absolutely loved it. No doubt you would have done it a lot flasher than us. Even even today, you know, it's very much about getting 
the job done and there's probably our horses aren't show horses or they are the proper work horses and and we use over two and a half ton of horseshoes a year you know i mean it's just it's a job at hand now you know we've got people lined up to do this experience richard you described that you from a very young age have many frequent flyer miles with the flying doctor you mentioned earlier to me that the first uh, incident was when you were just eight years old before we dive into that would you describe for me what what was the station or the home like when you were growing up in the early 70s what was it like from your perspective as an eight-year-old well Sorry, I get a little bit emotional when it comes to my home and my my childhood because of a number of reasons, but it was a world that, you know, I, I probably didn't really know there was another world out there and that was just, it was a world of my own and with the, the couple of aboriginal stockmen that we used to work with and all the different animals and that that we were taught about by our aboriginal stockmen and um, those old fellas we called our uncles it was a it was truly a whole world of our of my own and coming into town every three or four months was was somewhere that we were half frightened to come to and we were very pleased to be getting out of town too um, when we were heading home because it wasn't where we were comfortable. But to try and explain my home and my my home life, pretty special. It kind of probably paints a picture for you where, you know, the only communication we had of the outside world was our old VHF radio and there was no telephones, there was no nothing. And on the front of that radio was the red button and that was that was the Flying Doctor's button. And that's been a big part of my my life because it was one of those things as a kid, there's some very, all very important things that are a part of your everyday life. And we all knew where that button was and we all, we all knew that that was our, as a kid, that was, that was like the emergency button and, and no one touched it and no one, you know, you didn't, you didn't muck with that. So... My world was a, a world apart from every other every other place, and it was our own little world. I can remember cousins we're getting a telegram to say that cousins are coming and for the holidays, or other city city people were coming out for a few weeks or something. And my brothers and myself, we'd all get in the paddock and have a big old cry about it, you know, to one another, and say we don't need them here and all the rest because. It was our little world. It was our world. <laughs> okay, Richard, so you've, you've painted the picture beautifully. Now, I understand there was an accident with your pony that you were giving a little bit of grief. Could you tell me what happened with that pony? Well, look, we all had ponies and horses, of course, but the homestead was on a on a on what we call a sand ridge in a nice sandy place and quite soft sand. And the track coming in, there was a couple of big sand holes that... If you're in a two-wheel drive, which we didn't see too many two-wheel drives out there, but if ever a two-wheel drive did turn up, they had to negotiate it pretty well just to get through these sand holes. And even in a four-wheel drive, if you didn't, if you didn't kind of watch what you're doing, you'd just bog bog down with a four-wheel drive. You had to know how to 
handle a sand hole. But, you know, we used to play this, um, what we call Arab, Arab race, where we'd dress up like Arabs and and um, we'd... <laughs> We'd see who could get the best time down this sandy, sandy road, hitting the um, sand holes with the with the pony and all the rest. And anyway, it was fun we made ourselves. And and one day we were we were there, and my pony was giving me a bit of grief and um, being a real pig. So I was giving it a churn up, and it had enough of me trying to churn it up. So it decided to churn me up, and it started rooting and. And, um, of course, I was at the upper end of his ears at one part, and then I was back on the, you know, I was all over him like a monkey. And Were you, I presume there was no saddles. You were just bareback? No, 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 there was a saddle. You had a little saddle. Yeah, yeah, we had yeah. saddles. And the long and short of it, I, I got bucked off, and I went out over his ears. Like, he got a bit serious, you know. And I went out over his ears. Well, you know, you live and learn. Well, one thing you learn, and I learned it that day pretty well, if, if you're going to exit off a rooting horse, you go out the back because, you you know, you're probably gonna, it's probably going to hurt when you hit the ground, but at least you're clear of the horse. Well, I went out over his ears. Well, you know where the next buck of the horse was? It was all over the top of me. So it wasn't only the only hitting the dirt hurt. When he started bucking on top of me, that's what did the damage was he stood on me chest and and um, broke me ribs front and back on that one side and pushed him through me lung and of course it punctured me lung and and I pretty much immediately started coughing up blood and looked pretty terrible. I was in a fair bit of pain and and losing me breath and starting to go blue and all the rest and the boy the dad and all the stockmen were all out mustering and there was only mum and my younger brother there and he was only I would have been close to nine I reckon and he would have been seven. So that was they dragged me in. Mum and my younger brother kinda of got me into the homestead and of course pressed the button and So that's the button on the radio. Press the red button, the the famous red on, button. On the VHF radio, well I can still remember that. It would have been no more than 30 seconds and the the, the person came on and um, asked where they wanted, where they had to be direct, where we had to be directed to. And I can remember, well, mum was panicking and she had started telling the person uh, on the radio what the problem was. And the person said, well, look, I'm going to have to put you straight through to the, through to the emergency and you'll have to talk to a doctor. Within no time, she was talking to the doctor and the doctor summed the situation up and he said, well, look, you're going to have to give this kid a, an injection and we're going to have to try and kill the pain and keep him breathing to, to keep coughing that blood up. And the doctor said at the time, he said, hopefully there's only one lung that's been hurt and the other one, you know, is right. We just have to keep the blood coming out. But he'll have to keep breathing. We'll have to keep him breathing. So poor old mum had to go to the flying doctor kit. Every station's got a flying doctor kit, and it's got everything in it, you know, like, I mean, every drug you can think of. And it's all numbered, and um, I can remember mum going to it, and I I don't know what, why, but I, I can recall it being number 58, and I don't really know. It mightn't be that anymore, but... It was a, it was an injection of some sort, morphine or something. I can remember Mum saying, "I've never given an injection in my life. I don't know whether I can." And and the doctor said, "Don't, 
don't worry about that. He said just um, draw a cross on his backside and use the top the top square and and um, just put it in and it'll be fine, you know. So um, and my stupid brother, he said, well, just do it like Dad gives a horse's mum, you know, just go bump 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 jab. Oh no! He reckons the horses don't even feel it. So Mum thought that was a pretty good idea so she went bump 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 jab and then my stupid brother said not that deep so she pulled it straight back out so i ended up getting about three injections for the price of one but anyway they got it into me and i um it settled me right down and practically put me to sleep and and i was just constantly coughing up blood and it was um it was, uh, but at least the injection removed all the pain and, and it, I started probably breathing in better, you know, like I mean, because I, I didn't have pain. What was happening was the pain was stopping me breathing and I was very short breath. Oh, broken ribs are just the pits. Oh, yeah. Broken ribs. It's just so painful. Oh, it's horrible. When it, it, had, broken, it had broken the same ribs front and back. But the problem, the real problem was, was, the airstrip, and Dad was a bit like I am today, I guess, and where I haven't got time to do nothing. And the airstrip on that sandy country, you gotta you gotta keep the ants' nest, the white ants' nests off the airstrip every every month was was our rule that someone had to go and literally matic the ants' nests off the back because they can be from four inches high to to eight and twelve inches high, like you know, a foot high if they if there's a little bit of moisture in the ground. Anyway, um, that was the airstrip was a mess, and and the only thing was was that my younger brother had to go and start working on the airstrip because the plane was going to be there in an hour. Oh no! So your seven-year-old brother's out there with a matic. What type of ants were these? These are white ants. So they're they live in the ground and then they build these. The termites nest, you would have saw them. The termite yeah. nest, yes. So yeah. they're not, at least they're not, you know, like biting. No, ants, no, no termite they? nest. And so anyway, my brother, he worked away there. He didn't get them all off, but he got, I can remember the doctor saying on the radio, as long as he gets it, you tell the boy, as long as he's got it 30 big steps wide all the way down the strip. So he'd worked out the kid's steps. He had to be 30 big steps wide. <laughs> As I mentioned earlier, this podcast has been made possible with the support of Isuzu Ute Australia. Having reliable vehicles is imperative in the harsh Australian outback, and Isuzu have provided D-Max Utes and MUX SUVs to pull seven large RFDS flight simulators as they engage in school, community and field day activities for the Royal Flying Doctor Service. These simulators are full-size planes, minus the wings, and the Isuzu D-MAX and MUX vehicles are a perfect match for the long-distance heavy towing demands of these RFDS simulators right across Australia. So keep an eye out for them as they travel around each state, and we would love to see photos and locations on our Flying Doctor podcast community Facebook page when you see them. Imagine what it would be like from your little brother's perspective that yeah. he has to get rid of these ant nests so that the plane can arrive so it can save his brother mm-hmm. and he it's everything is up to him to get these ant nests out of the way oh my gosh yeah. well mum couldn't leave me and 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 he was on his own so 
he could hardly reach the pedals on the blooming four-wheel drive. You know, like he had to, and he had to navigate his way through the sand holes. And like, you know, he should have probably got bogged in them. But anyway, he he got through there and he got over the airstrip and and away when and he just finished when the plane was landing. Uh, so he was a bit the hero in the in a sense. And he took him, he brought him over. He did the driving. He didn't even let the, the the doctors and that do the driving of the old ute. He just jumped in the driving seat and he took him over to the homestead. Like, I mean, he just took the control, took control of the whole situation. Anyway, they they um, doctored me up as best they could and put me in a brace and whatever have you to try and support me, um, me damage and threw me on the plane and away I went. I think they flew me straight out to Rockhampton, but it was pretty pretty much a week in hospital and um, it was touch and go. Like if it wasn't for the flying doctor, there's no way I would have survived the trip into town. If it wasn't for the flying doctor kit, there's no way I would have lived. I mean, we've got so much to thank our flying doctors for. It was after that first accident, or that real accident, that Dad started to offer one of his... He, he bred stud bulls, or, you know, um, we had stud cattle, and, and Dad would donate one of the bulls to the flying doctor every year at auction at. That's very generous. It's been a big part of our life, the flying doctor. That's um, that was number one, and then that was number one. Now I understand number two was when you were fourteen, and you were on top of a cattle truck. Now cattle trucks are really tall. What? Why were you on top of a cattle truck? Is my first question, Richard. What we're doing, we're loading portable panels, and we were well and truly always right up on top doing something or unhooking something or I don't know. I probably shouldn't even been where I was, but that's what it's like when, you, when you're a kid. I would have been at least three and a half metres above the ground. And for some reason, I decided to do a nosedive um, off the side of the truck. On purpose or you just were you jumping off or you just slipped? No, I must have got tripped up or something. I don't really remember what happened because I remember right. falling... That was the last of it. Oh, that was really the, the oh, I did come to a little bit just as they were loading me on the plane, the aeroplane. But apart from that, I was kind of, that's all I really remember. You were out. But I landed, they reckon I landed on my head. And the family joke is that the, it was lucky I landed on my head because if I landed on anything else, it would have hurt, hurt myself. So... <laughs> But it should have killed me. Like, I mean, there's no doubt it should have killed me. And um, I can remember coming to the funny part of this story was, you might have to edit this out, but I can remember coming to, and all I could see was this big lady, and she was kind of waddling around the end of my bed, and I knew I was in a bed, and then I realised I was in a hospital, and then all things started to come come to me like I... I I'm in a hospital and I'm looking at it, this big nurse, you know, and she was a she was a whopper. She noticed that I'd come to and she got quite excited and she started asking me questions and all the rest of it and, and strike a light, you know, like, I mean, she's asking me what my name was and this and that and all the rest. And she pressed a button on the end of the bed and a heap of other people come. And anyway, um, then this big lady... This big nurse got caught up and they had me hooked up with a catheter 
lead, you know. It just, like, I mean, that really hurt. And she, I come up out of bed like you wouldn't believe. And the more she wrapped me up around herself, the more I come up out of bed. And they're all trying to tell me to lay still and I'm not supposed to be moving and they're waiting to do certain tests and all the rest of it. But she had me, she had me proper on the lead, you know, like she did a, she did all the tests in one hit, I reckon. I mean, she did a spinal check, she, she did a, she did a stress test, she did a leading test, she did a feeling test, the whole lot, she could have got the whole lot done in one hit. But anyway, that was quite funny because it was a joke with the whole hospital, how well you can lead a bloke around with a, with a catheter, um, you know, with a catheter pod. <laughs> anyway. Richard, so you fell, you know, three and a half, four metres onto your head. Was it a concussion? Like, I understand you were unconscious and they even put you in an induced coma. Was there any damage? Did you break bones? Did you, like, what What happened? Was the, What was the final diagnosis? Other than the fact that this nurse had you by the lead. <laughs> Well, that, it, it, it was actually a miracle, and and because of the story, I become like I was kind of so well known in the hospital. Like the whole hospital was talking about this kid that had fell off of this truck, and you know it hasn't even hurt him. You know, like I mean, well, it should have killed me. You know, or it should have had some detrimental effect, and but it just didn't. And it was just, it was just a miracle that that nothing happened you do really realize that you know without those sort of services in the bush you know we would really really do it tough yeah you managed to stay you know out of trouble i shall say in quotation marks for the next almost two decades until your stagecoach days oh. started and when you were about I think 35 or so, you were uh, yeah, driving a stagecoach and going across a bridge. Uh, what happened then with that stagecoach? I presume driving you at the front? One of my teams was a pure Persian. I don't know whether you know what a Persian horse is. They're like a big French draft horse and they're actually carriage horses. They're not player horses, they're carriage horses. So big clan-footed horses and and huge horses, and I had a whole team of them. We were coming back in one day from the mail track, and the council wouldn't let me go across the creek down here at the bottom end of town where the old coaches used to come in, even though it was corduroyed and everything. They wouldn't let me go across there. They wanted me to go up around the, uh, up around the bridge and use the bridge, and it was always a concern for me because... The last thing, when you've got a team of horses, it's just, you know, instinct tells you keep them where you can kind of run away from things and they can, they got room to get a fright or do whatever. We were coming, just lying on the bridge up and I saw the whirly wind coming. I could see all the rubbish and it was kind of coming all around the edge of town. And if you know what whirly winds are like, um, they'll line you up no matter where you go no matter what you do to try to get out of their road they'll still find you and they'll line you up that just seems to be how it is and i straight away saw the spot i was in i was just about on the bridge and one thing you can't do with a like a five in hand and a and a coach is you can't just reverse up and you can't pull up so i was on the approaches of the bridge and i couldn't turn around i couldn't pull up 
And if I pulled up, it would have been worse because I knew the whirly wind had just, you know, and then you get all your horses coming back on top of one another and all the rest of it. So whenever there's trouble like that, the safest thing you can do with a team of horses is they they are taught and, and you teach them to drive forward, you know, like they just got to drive forward. So we have our horses that we can drive them through a wall of fire or drive them through into floodwaters and just keep pulling like we can't have them coming back because the moment they come back we call it coming south you lose all your rain control and you just lose all control and they get tangled up in harness and you can imagine the mess so the secret is to keep them pulling forward and we teach them that so i just i knew there was only one thing for it and we had to push forward and i knew the whirly wind had hit us but the rubbish is what concerned me i thought oh dear oh dear this is this is serious and um, I had a full load of people on, which was 12 people, and had three people up the back of the stagecoach and a little girl sitting between the pole runner. That's the man that was helping me, and everyone else was inside. And, and we pushed that team into like a, into the into the whirly wind, so to speak. And one of the uh, – there was a big plastic bag, black plastic bag that come and went across the lead horse, right across his face. Well, of course, that he couldn't see where he was going and he pushed his mates and he literally just went and pushed his mates straight over the bridge. Oh, my God. So that's what happened. So we just went over the bridge and the horses went straight down and the coach hit the edge of the bridge. There was a little bit of a six-inch lip on the edge of the bridge and the front wheels hit that and it started the coach going. So it did a complete somersault and landed on a roof down in the creek. And it went over the horses, so all the horses, are, it didn't land on the horses, it went over, the, of course it did a whole cartwheel, it went over the horses and everyone up top was thrown off, they were well and truly hoisted off. The little girl on the front was thrown into the, into the bushes and my pole runner who was standing up at the time because he got up, he saw what was happening, he'd stood up to jump off to grab the horses and do what he could but it all happened before he could do that he broke his he broke his ankle or broke his leg and i went down with the ship and the coach come over and snapped me snapped me arm and um completely snapped it so it was just like a it was like a rag dog my arm was like a rag dog but the amazing part of thing amazing thing about it was i had no pain and and been my worst nightmare is horses galloping away with an overturned vehicle because especially with people on it because once horses start to panic and they gallop and they've got a thing dragging behind them that they normally haven't they just go faster and faster and it's just terrible so i i've always had nightmares about that and i got straight up and i can remember pulling my arm out from under this under the coach and um it was quite fortunate that there was no water left in the in the creek, but there was it was soft mud. Once again, it was a miracle how how we were saved from a, a total disaster. Like it was soft mud that we landed in, and um, I can remember pulling my arm from under it, and I thought to myself at the time, "Well, it's had it. My arm was had it, you know." <laughs> But I went straight back to my horses and they were all there thrashing around trying to get up and I laid them all down because we teach our horses to do that in case one goes down. We just make him, we can make him lay there until we cut his harness and get him clear and then we can stand him up. Well, I laid every horse down 
and then I, I had help starting to come from the other stagecoach that we had was behind me. One of my sons come and one of the uh, fellas from down in the channel country come along in a cattle truck and he saw what had happened. He straight away pulled over and down he comes. So I had some good horsemen and some good stockmen around me helping. Like, I mean, I was just so fortunate that I had some mates. Uh, they started unloading the people while I held, while I talked to be horses and kept them on the ground. And they got everybody off and... Was everybody okay? Yeah, there, there wasn't a scratch on anybody else. The little girl that flew into the bushes, was she all right? You wouldn't believe it. She went into these bushes and quite bushy little bushes. She landed in the bushes and the bushes took her down to the ground pretty well and then they stood her back up and she stood up <laughs> and walked away. Can you believe that? It was like a spring, and she just kind of went back like that, and away she walked. And But we stood those horses up one by one once we had them clear of their harness. I thought the poor old horse that was underneath and the others were, there was a couple on top of him. I honestly thought he had broke his neck and he was dead because he just wasn't moving. And one of my favourite old horses, and I thought to myself, oh, you know, he would broke his neck. You know, there was no moving at all, but... Harness horses are amazing horses, especially if they've been trained right and they have confidence in the driver. As you can appreciate, we we winker them up, so we put winkers on them. You practically they do an agreement with you then, you know that they'll that you do an agreement that you'll look after them, and you that's the agreement you got with them. And that's why they say any horses that have been in a crash, you can never get them back in to to pull another vehicle because you've you've um you know you've lost their trust yeah you've broken the agreement yep and they go by they go by their master's command so their ears the horse can turn his ears backwards and you can talk to him so you really sign that agreement with them that you'll keep all hurt from them like you won't let dogs attack them you won't let them get hurt while they're in there and they just trust you they take you take away all their protection when you take away their eyesight so these poor old horses, I mean, they, I stood them up and it was important that I was there with them and I talked to them and they just laid there and they were, one, they were struggling before I got there and then once I got there, I talked to them and they all laid out and they were all just happy. They knew I was there to help them and um, it would have taken us quarter of an hour, 20 minutes to get everybody out of the coach and clear because we needed to do that before we even tried because if something did go wrong and they started uh, dragging the overturned stagecoach and someone was stuck under it or something that would be disastrous so we had to get everyone clear and then we stood them up one at a time and walked them out you know the old the old horse sam was his name i stood him up and the dear old fellow just stood up and he had a look at the mess and he walked away he walked out with me moving to say well that was close, you know, and I could just read everything that our horse was thinking. And so that was all, that all turned out good. And then they kind of, they were trying to bundle me up and take me because of this broken arm. And and it was the last, like, I didn't want to leave the scene. I couldn't leave the scene. I was probably shocked. I was under shock and all the rest of it. And I probably couldn't really think straight, but... 
I just knew I had to get those horses out of there. I knew everyone else had to be safe. And so they eventually grabbed me and kind of said, come on, you've got to get in the ambulance and we've got to get you to the hospital. That arm's, well, it was proper. It was proper broke, you know, it was terrible. Richard, so was it bleeding? Were you bleeding or was it just an arm that was completely shattered? It didn't break the skin. It was just a, it was a rag doll. It, by the time we finished, it was, it all, it was internal bleeding, but it wasn't, but it was looking right. pretty terrible. So they, they dragged me to the, to the Ambo and away we went and they took me straight up to the surgery or the hospital and let the blood out and, you know, started patching me up and, and, and fixing it up. But then they'd called the flying doctor and, and um, he flew in, flew in, and then they flew me out to Rockhampton, um, and and my pole runner. They flew him out too because he had quite a bad break right through his ankle. But um, yeah, that was um, quite an episode. And and I I can remember ringing me boys when I got to Rockhampton, and I said, um, that's me two, my two boys. I said, boys, you've got to. At all costs, you've got to put those horses back in the harness tomorrow morning. Don't put people on, but you've got to put them in, put them in their team and 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 take them down and take them for a nice quiet run, because otherwise, I said we don't, we you know we might never get them in harness again, you know. But one thing I knew in myself that they hadn't been traumatized. Like I mean, they there was nothing that it was traumatizing for them, but. They hadn't been chased by an overturned vehicle or, you know, they hadn't been hurt in a sense, you know. There wasn't a scratch on any of them. And those old horses went back in the in the coach, the other coach, and, and they walked away like old soldiers. They just did not miss a beat. Richard, I have to say that the love that you have for your horses just comes through. Like, I can just tell... The passion and the affinity and the love that you have for those wonderful creatures. And do you still have old Sam? Is he still around? No, Sam. Sam got cancer in the end, and and we had to we had to put Sam down. But the the whole thing was a whole miracle because the the head sergeant here, the head of police that was here at the time, he was off duty. He was actually on his his four days off. And he heard by Facebook that we'd gone over the bridge. He threw his uniform on and he come down. And by that time, there was people starting to roll up and then the Ambos hadn't turned up and none of the other police had turned up, none of the fireys had turned up. He controlled everything and he controlled the media. He controlled because media turned up, ABC turned up, and, and, you know, they were all wanting to get photographs of people being unloaded off the coach and he just sorted all that out for me and he stood up at a conference a couple of years later and told the horse story it was the most extraordinary story because it was those horses it could have been so different but those our horses knew that they had to wait it was through them that the situation turned out a a good story. Yeah, it could have been so bad. You know, we were we had to deal with the legal side of things and, you know, some people tried 
suing and all the rest of it. And, but when I could prove that I could lay all those horses down and hold them on the ground and ask them to get up by name, that just cleared me of everything. They could not argue a thing. The whole ingredient of the whole thing that made it a happy ending was those horses. Richard, how is your arm now? I'm, I'm keen to know, have you lost functionality or did you have to have surgery and pins and rods and stuff put into your arm? They didn't plaster it. It was too bad to plaster and all of that. So what they did, they operated on it and they reconstructed the whole thing with steel. So I'm kind of a half a bionic man now, you know. <laughs> You're improved. You're the improved version. Yeah, I haven't, <laughs> I haven't um, um, lost any strength in my fingers or nothing. And um, sometimes now when the boys put me on the cobs and I have to fill in and drive, it gets a little bit tired, like it's quick to get tired. And the doctors have told me that I won't break it again. I'll probably bend it, but I won't break it. <laughs> <laughs> So there you go. Wow. Adrenaline's an amazing thing. You just, um, they wanted to give me painkiller and um, and put me on stuff and all the rest of it. And I said, well, there's no need to because it's not hurting. But they said, oh, well, it's going to start hurting soon. You know, it was um, it was like that. But um, there was no pain at all, which um, I, I guess that's a bit of a saying, you know, no brains, no pain. No, I've definitely done interviews with a number of people where, similar to you, they have a really shocking, severe injury and they don't feel a thing. And mm. it just it's just that adrenaline that's running them to deal with whatever that incident is. Yeah. And they get all the way through that. And once everybody's safe and everybody's accounted mm. for and it's all good other than themselves, mm. they then promptly collapse. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah. I think... I think you've done amazing, and now we've got Richard, you know, 2.0 with your bionic arm. Uh, so it's just, it's a remarkable story, mm -hmm. and I really appreciate you telling us about it. And also, we've only uh, done an interview with a, a couple of people around horses, and I, I really appreciate uh, your insight and your wisdom and your experience in terms of handling the working horse. They are such an integral part of our history and such an integral part of our workplace when it comes to rural and remote Australia. And I think you've really aptly described that really close bond and relationship. How many people would be would have been lifted out of properties, uh, stations and places because of horse accidents, you know, with the flying doctor and the poor old horse is often left back there to deal with his own deal with his own injuries and deal with his own self. Do you have any reflections or life lessons that you've adopted as a consequence of your frequent flyer miles, Richard? Well I I probably often think of um those people that are in a sense risking their lives to fly in to, to get you and to take you out. Like, I mean, that doctor and that pilot that come out to me when I was a kid, um, knowing that that seven-year-old was maddicking off those ants' nests and him telling the kid that as long as it's 30 big steps wide, I should get down. Now, can you imagine that pilot? He would have flew over there and he would have looked at that and he would have saw what the kid had done, and he would have thought, well, has he done it good enough? Like, I mean, we only have to take a wheel out here, and we're 
we'll ground the plane, you know, it'll be a bigger disaster than a kid going for a bus or a horse. So I probably learned a lesson way back then that, hey, if, you, if you're the one that's in the wheelchair, so to speak, or you're the one that they're trying to look after, you've put a number of lives at risk. People are, are doing everything they can possibly do to get you out of there or get you save your life. It's a wonderful thing when you when you live in rural and remote Australia, you rely on on those around you and, and so forth. Thank yeah. you so much, Richard, for for coming to tell us about this story. I really appreciate yeah. um, you letting us walk in your footsteps. Well, thank you. That's been really good to be able to do that. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share it with family and friends. And don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You can also join our new Facebook group called the Flying Doctor Podcast Community, where you can chat to other listeners. And please do try out our new podcast hotline. You can call and leave an audio message with questions and feedback on the podcast. The number for the hotline is 02 7928 We look forward to hearing from you. The Flying Doctor podcast was presented by me, Lana Mitchell, and senior producer is Mandy Cullen. Thanks again for listening. Before I head off, I just want to thank one last time our sponsor and major national partner, Isuzu Ute Australia. Isuzu is committed to supporting the communities in which the RFDS operates, and this podcast would not be possible without their support. To learn more, search Isuzu Ute online.